Welcome to Lessons in Leadership, Steve Arabato with the great Mary Gamba. And Mary, let's get right into this. We're honored to be joined by Anthony Labazetta, who's president and CEO of Provident Bank. Good to see you, Tony. My pleasure. It's good to see you, Steve and Mary. Yeah, we're going to be talking about sports and leadership in just a second, uh, banking as well. But <laughs> right out of the box, this, describe uh, Provident's footprint, if you will. Well, Provident is, uh, if you might know, it's, it's one of the oldest banks in the state of New Jersey. And uh, today we're roughly approximately $14 billion in assets. Um, I would say we're, we might be the second largest bank in the state of New Jersey after uh, investors sold to, to citizens. Um, we also run a, a wealth group, which is roughly $4 billion of assets under management, which we call Beacon Trust. And we have an insurance agency that we call Provident Protection Plus, um, who's uh, a solid agency and augments well with our, with our commercial banking platform. Good stuff. And Mary, you may not know this, but one of the first seminars I did when I got into coaching and, and, and leadership development was, in fact, in Jersey City at Provident Bank. And I, was, <laughs> I learned so much. It, it was a great team of people there. And it was great uh, as early on in my career before I really knew what I was doing. So, uh, but they paid me anyway. It's great. So, Mary, one of the things I want to ask Tony about, and we had an offline conversation in which we clicked very quickly, and it was largely about how we grew up, where we grew up, and frankly, its connection to leadership. Tony, how did your family life growing up, where and how you did influence and impact your approach to leadership? Well, I, I think uh, that's, a, that's a great question. And I, and I would go back and say, first, uh, it's unique in the sense that, you know, there, there's sometimes many siblings in a family and, 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 and leadership qualities come out a little differently. Um, I think for me personally, I was five of six. So there was a lot of independence. There was a lot of uh, self-motivation, a lot of drive. Both my parents worked. So I didn't get the privilege of the coaching that, uh, that you know, my own children would get today. Um, so I had to learn a lot of things on the fly, but at, a, at an early age, I, I, you kind of feel what it's like uh, to, to lead your gang, your, not your gang in a bad way, but your gang of friends that you hang around with. And then as you take sports, you play sports, you become more of an active role. You become captains of the team. It feels good. You like how um, you're able to, to bring a group of people together and drive for a goal. And, and it was exciting. And that influenced uh, my thoughts even to the present day. Where'd you grow up uh, geographically? In Westchester, in, uh, in, in that Port Chester area. And, and so you're familiar with that? I am. I used to go to Iona in New Rochelle. Yeah. Iona so, College. Yeah. But, you know, Rye Playland. We spent a lot of years up there uh, growing up. And I moved to New Jersey in 1990. Well, glad to have you. Mary, jump in because I got a bunch of stuff for Tony. Yeah, definitely. I would love to talk a little bit about mergers, acquisitions, and bridging two cultures together. I know it's a full 180 in terms of what we were just talking about, but a lot of what we do in our coaching and leadership training is talking about how to bring two cultures together, getting the DNA exactly. Can you talk a little bit about your approach, especially at Provident Bank, of how you do that when you merge or acquire it's a, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, I could give you stories going back to other mergers, but the one with Provident and, and SB1 had another unique feature to it, which was in the middle of a pandemic. So perhaps I could give you a little color on both. Uh, it, you know, from from uh, when, when we were, we announced the merger a week later, the world began to shut down um, and we were in the middle of a pandemic. We proceeded to, to continue to close the deal 
Um, but what was unique about that situation was that you had to do a lot of things remotely. So as I, as I touch upon why it's, it, the merger went into cultures is about developing trust. Number one, uh, it's very difficult to do on a Zoom call. And so when you're in a room and people can feel your passion, the energy, and they can look you in the eye, it's a lot different than, than doing it on a Zoom call. So um, it, 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 we, we did it and, and eventually we, we got accomplished, but it, it made it tougher. But in terms of merging the cultures, a lot of people come in uh, with a vision or thinking they're the smartest person in the room and immediately you wanna tell people what to do. And that is an incorrect strategy in my, in my opinion. I think the way it worked for us or my style would be, I do have to have a vision, but that vision needs to be discussed. It needs to become the vision of the team, the leadership team, so that we all understand and embrace it. Um, but, but fundamentally, you have to win the hearts and minds on both sides, right? When you're going through a merger, there's a lot of emotions. There's fear, there's the unknown, change. Um, uh, I'm both the, the acquiring entity and uh, the acquiree. Uh, there's you, people worry about their futures. That comfortable seat that you had on the couch is now potentially going to change, right? And that's a, a, a euphemism, obviously. But now you have to kind of establish a common set of values and a common set of uh, what I would call a sense of purpose. And, they, and you have to win their hearts and minds. Without trust and winning the hearts and minds, I don't, I don't care how smart you are. You're just not going to go anywhere. Tony, I want to follow up on this. You mentioned a word that I wrote down, and, and it's important, and it's fear. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. You said people are afraid. There's fear. But from a leadership perspective, there have been times, and I, I, don't, I try not to turn lessons in leadership into a therapy session for me, but the reality is there have been times early on in the pandemic, other times, uh, financial concerns, right, where I've been afraid. Yes. And, I've, and I've often tried to not only understand this intellectually and personally, but also, again, because I do so much leadership and communication coaching, people will say, I'm afraid. And I'll say, okay, well, the greatest leaders, it's not that they're not afraid, it's that they're afraid, but they don't let the fear stop them from doing what they need to do. My question to you is this. How important is it that you as a leader not let your people see that you are afraid or are complicated for you? I never asked two questions in one, but I will here, versus sometimes letting them know there's a bit of vulnerability in you. But all the time while you're trying to show confidence. Complicated, I know, but I want to hear your perspective on this. Well, I, I think uh, that's a phenomenal question from the standpoint of, uh, I think the definition of courage is to be afraid and then to still have the will to act. Um, and, I, and I think the, the, uh, with my team, you have to be human. You have to show the vulnerable side of yourself. You have to, it can't be Superman. When you're in a room in a tough situation, people have to know that it's a vulnerable time and there's fear involved, but we can't become inertial. We have to make that tough choice. That's what leaders do. And, um, and, then, and then you can go back and look at it afterwards and say, wow, look at what we've done. But um, you're entirely accurate. I mean, I, you have to act and, and you can't be a leader unless you're willing to take that risk. And so courage with fear, it, it, you know, has it, got to be something that all leaders embrace. Um, and, and believe it or not, there's so many people that don't want to make the decision, right? And sometimes they, they just want to pass the buck to others. Well, we, uh, real quick, 
decision making. When you're making tough decisions on behalf of the bank, on behalf of all the people in the bank, something goes wrong. I'm a big fan, of, and people I'm sure are tired of me putting this up there, but this is one of my favorite books of all time, Extreme Ownership, um, written by two Navy SEALs who talk about taking responsibility. I've often argued that the greatest leaders own it, all of it, no matter who did what. So many leaders do not. How challenging is it for you to take full responsibility, own the mistake, even if somebody else on the team who you put there was the one who did it? Go ahead, Tom. I know that's complicated. Hey, well, it's, it's, it's complicated, but, but it's really simple. Um, I think it's something that is not natural for many people. I think that it's a learned behavior over time. So as, as people learn to become self-aware, you know, people would know, know that I'm a type A personality. Some type A, sometimes type A personalities think they do nothing wrong, right? And and so <laughs> um, we we you have to condition yourself. You have to understand you know the challenges that you have. And so when something comes up, the first thing that has to trigger is that response to I own it. And the moment you tell yourself I own it. Before you say anything else, you have to say that in your mind. I own it. And then the natural response becomes, it doesn't matter what everybody else did. I own it. Let's talk about the issue. Put it on the table. And conversely, when things go right, I don't own it. I pass, the, <laughs> I pass it on to everybody else. Boy, we need more leadership like that. Mary, go ahead. Got a couple minutes left with Tony. Yeah, I would love to talk just a little bit about succession planning, obviously in a, a large and you've talked about, you know, one of the oldest banks in, in the state of New Jersey. Talk a little bit about your approach to succession planning. We're always looking to build leaders up, coach, mentor, develop them. What is your approach to succession planning? I, I, I think a lot of people talk about succession planning, but I think very, very, there's a, a finite amount that really act deeply on the subject matter. And, and I would say we're constantly learning and studying how to become better at this. But my approach to it is first and foremost is to have an embedded mechanism in your organization to identify people, right? So nobody can be a successor. if You don't identify them early enough to then obviously develop them. Um, you wanna provide them some stretch assignments, see how they perform, right? And um, along the way, you have to coach, mentor. And, and I spend a lot of time with my executives and senior management group to see how they think critically, how during situational, uh, certain situations, what's the critical thinking about? How do they respond? And then my last one, which is, is you can't really get anywhere in the organization without passing this test. Um, do, you, do, you, do you care about the people? Are you somebody that's gonna make the world better around you or are you going to make a bunch of average people worse, right? So, the, you're gonna, you wanna make average people better. So I like leaders that can make everything around them better. And, and that's what, I mean, if you go back to sports, Steve, I think that that's what, what we talk about, the greatest athletes are those that make people around them better. And yep. I think it's no different for leaders in business. Yeah, by the way, I held up my Yankee hat because I'm, uh, <laughs> as we talk, we're doing this in the fall of, in September of 2022, hopefully the Yankees will be playing for much, uh, a longer period of time after this. Tony. We will only show the video if, if we can get it and he throws a strike. He's throwing out the first pitch at a New York Yankee game coming up. P.S. You feel any pressure or stress around that, Tony? No, I actually don't. But, I, you know, the stress that I feel, I'm lying. The stress that I feel is what's going to happen to me with all my friends that decided to come to the game to watch if, God forbid, I bounce the ball to home plate. 
Oh, you're not going to bounce it. I have faith in you. That's not going to happen. Wait a God, minute. I'm going to throw it 20 feet over his head before I bounce it. <laughs> Tony, that's the move. And by the way, if your friends are anyone like anything like my friends that I grew up with, they're not rooting for me to throw a strike. So that's all I'm going to say. Hey, Tony, I cannot thank you enough for, for joining us. All the best with the first pitch. This will be seen after that. And uh, best to you and the family and the team at Provident. Thank you so much. I enjoyed being with you, Mary. We enjoyed being Stay right there. We're going to stay right there, Tony. We'll be right back right after this. This edition of Lessons in Leadership is made possible by the Bucino Leadership Institute at Seton Hall University, Prager Metis, Valley Bank, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 825, the North Ward Center, the New Jersey Sharing Network, Delta Dental of New Jersey, Fedway Associates, Inc., Veolia, Resourcing the World, and Seton Hall University, showing the world what great minds can do since 1856. This is Mary Gamba. If you want more leadership tips and tools, log on to stand-deliver.com. That's stand-deliver.com. Promotional support for this edition of Lessons in Leadership with me, Steve Adubato, and my colleague, Mary Gamba, has been provided by NJ.com, NJBIA, and New Jersey Business Magazine. CIANJ and Commerce Magazine. Construction companies work at the heart of our communities. So do the operating engineers of Local 825, who build our roads and bridges and ensure the safe transmission of energy that keeps us on the move. Local 825 works with contractors as partners in quality, safety, and training. Our achievements stand as monuments to collaboration that will last for generations. This message has been brought to you by the members of Operating Engineers Local 825. Better building begins here. Welcome back to Lessons in Leadership. Steve Adubato, Mary Gamba. We are now joined by uh, a good friend up at the Essex Fells Country Club. He is Dan Pasternak, General Manager and Chief Operating Officer up at the Essex Fellows Country Club. Hey, Mary, you thought I was finished with all my props, right? Oh, no. You're going to pull out a golf club right about now or a ball? Oh, a golf hat. That's much more appropriate. I thought you were going to pull out like a long like driver or something. Dan, is this just a golf hat or a specific golf hat? Oh, that is the Essex Fells Country Club logo. I uh, I love it. Mary? Yes. You can't tell, but this is a, a ball marker with the logo. Dan, what's the what's the thing with the tree? It's just our it's our country club logo. It's been it's been our symbol since the club started in 1896. And P.S. As a member, I want to make I want to disclose that I've been a member of Essex Fellows for the last uh, several years. It's not about golf. We're not talking about golf. You can watch the golf channel for that. This is about leadership, management, communication, and the running of a. Um, of a country club or a, a golf course, uh, a whole range of things. Dan, question, how challenging is it in these days to lead and manage the organization? Well, it's, it's, well, it's definitely a challenge. Uh, it, it's just different. Um, the climate is different. Uh, the way that we're dealing with employees is different. Um, I think you need to be flexible when you're dealing with employees, especially uh, young employees. And then coming out of covid uh, the golf industry has been exceptionally busy, and country clubs are no exception to that. And, and it's actually been a fun, a fun wave to ride. Here's what's interesting: we do all of our work remotely these days. Say I have some seminars 
leadership seminars in person, but most of it is remote. You can't be remote in your industry, correct? No, we're really, uh, we're a hospitality business. Uh, we're dealing with people every day. Uh, that really is the lifeblood of it. When you think about the product that we're selling, which is golf, what we're really selling is, is family entertainment and, and a place of belonging. Yeah, follow up, Mary. Yeah, definitely. I thought one of the coolest things when I was doing a little bit of research for this segment, Dan, was you actually received the 2018 PGA Professional of the Year Award. And if I'm not mistaken, the first New Jersey PGA section member to receive such an honor. First of all, is that is that accurate? Uh, yes, it is. Yes. Okay, great. So I want to talk just a little bit about leadership and accolades. Okay, so pretty much as leaders, obviously, we all like to pat ourselves on the back. What did it feel like to be recognized with that award? How did that make you feel? Well, I, I, obviously it made me feel great, but it was overwhelming at, at, at the same time. Uh, there's 29,000 men and women in the PGA of America. And to think that you were sing, singled out uh, is really incredible. Um, it's, it's neat to think that my work and the impact that I've had uh, has made an, a difference in the industry, and uh, I'm enormously proud of it. I, I still, you know, and that happened in 2018. There's times I still don't think it's real, <laughs> you know, that they might call me up and say, "Hey, we meant some other Dan," but um, but it's been a great journey, and I'm very very proud of it. Dan, you mentioned before about uh, particularly younger people managing, leading them, but I'm curious about this because Mary and I we've talked about this on lessons in leadership many times. Retaining talented people harder than ever because I, I think people have reevaluated their priorities to some degree and you know they're valuing their personal time maybe a little bit more and I think as leaders we can be more flexible in the way that we deal with the staff so they can have good quality of life and, and if we give them that then I think they're even more productive than you know when they're here at work so uh, we try to be as flexible as we can, you know, given the confines of the fact that we are a people business. Um, but I think that you meet the individual where, where they're at and you try to get the best of them. And if a little more personal time off is what they need or a little bit more coaching is what they need, then, you know, as a leader, that's what you have to provide. Quick follow up and Mary jump back in. But you know what, Dan, devil's advocate. There are times that you have to give feedback around performance to certain team members and the pushback, and Mary and I have talked about this a lot off the air as well as on, is you gotta, you gotta kind of watch yourself. You can't, you can't be too direct in your feedback or too critical because they might feel offended and you know, then they could leave. Dan, you can't run an organization like that. You've gotta give constructive feedback. You've got to not be critical, but be honest if someone hasn't performed. Go ahead. Uh, I, I think honesty is the only way to be with that. And direct feedback is is critical direct feedback to the goals that you're trying to accomplish if i haven't defined the goals up front if i haven't set the vision and given my staff the tools to achieve the vision then i'm really not a good leader in any way so i think i have to rally them around the things that were that we hold dear and what we're trying to accomplish and yes you have to hold them accountable to that when i do it i try to do the coaching in a positive way uh, certainly more positive to negative uh, but there are times where, you know, certain employees just aren't performing. And, you know, I didn't make this up, but I'd heard somewhere before that stress isn't caused by the people you fire. It's caused by those you didn't think, but should have. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know anything about Steve, that, Steve. You? you know, 
<laughs> as flippant as it may sound, it, it's true. Some some people just don't want to be a part of the team, and uh, and and at that point, you're you're probably better off making it making a decision, and uh, it's probably better off for both. Mary, we're not going to name any names. Leave it at that. Nope. No Here's names. Last question. No names. Go I ahead, would please. love the last question. I, I'm going to pivot so we don't get ourselves into trouble. Uh, let's totally pivot. Let's talk about customer service and leadership. Obviously, you have your key stakeholders, the golfers that come in every day. I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, complaints. What advice can you give? I to have anyone no idea watching? what she's talking about, Dan. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> My golf cart is so dirty. Um, so, so what advice do you have for those watching today who are in the customer service industry with dealing with unsatisfied customers and turning them into satisfied customers? Look, I, I don't think anybody likes to hear criticism. You know, I certainly don't. But I think the key point there is to listen, to listen to what they're saying. Uh, forget about what might be hyperbole or or the anger that they might be giving you in a, in a in an individual moment, but go back to what they're saying and try to figure it out. And you know that way you can hey, if that golf cart really is dirty, then you know what are we doing internally to make sure that we don't put out golf carts that aren't looking the best that they can. So I think you have to listen first, and uh, and then everything comes back to communication. Communication with your staff, communication to the people that you're serving. Uh, I think that really is the critical component to success. Yeah, final point here, a shout out because the golf carts are not dirty. <laughs> that was the only example I know because I Dan, I don't, I, I don't play golf, but I am the best golf cart driver in the world. I love driving <laughs> golf carts. It's just so much fun. That's how, I, that's how I got my kids to play. <laughs> there it is. And I also want to shout out to the entire staff that, at Essex Fells, um, and, and Brian Gaffney and the team and the pro shop and and the the whole the this is a great team, a great team of people. So Dan, I want to thank you for joining us. I look forward to seeing you out there and uh, wherever you play golf. Um, let me just say this: it is a wonderful sport. And for people like me who always have a calm, even demeanor, Mary, I just want to see if you're paying attention. <laughs> oh, I'm paying attention. There's the eye roll. <laughs> I'm joking. Dan, thanks for joining us. Mary Gamba, Steve Adubato, we'll be right back. Lessons in Leadership. This edition of Lessons in Leadership is made possible by the Bucino Leadership Institute at Seton Hall University, Prager Metis, Valley Bank, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 825, the North Ward Center, the New Jersey Sharing Network, Delta Dental of New Jersey, Fedway Associates, Inc., Veolia, resourcing the world, and Seton Hall University, showing the world what great minds can do since 1856. Welcome back to Lessons in Leadership. Steve Adubato with uh, Mary Gamba. Mary, I, I was remiss when we had Dan Pasternak from Essex Fells. Wanted to mention that uh, our good friend and attorney, Nick Greco, is the chairman of the annual tournament there. It's called the McMillan is the annual tournament. That's very challenging. It's over three days. And there are all these rules. And I kind of like when my golfing partners will say, oh, that's three feet away. That putt's good, Steve. In the McMillan, you have to putt everything out. It's, there are all these rules, Mary. <laughs> I thought golf was supposed to be fun. It is. But to Nick Greco, to the chairman of that tournament and our attorney, I promised to shout out, Nick. There it is. There's Leave me alone shout on out, that. Nick. All right, all good. Hey, Mary, listen, I, when, let's do another Lessons in Leadership mini seminar. All right? Yeah. 
You're going to see a graphic come up. This is leadership and strategic micromanagement. Now, micromanaging has gotten a bad rap in the leadership world. Oh, what are you doing micromanaging? Let your people just uh, tell them what they need to do or just frankly don't tell them what they need to do, but trust them. Give them free reign. And I'm like, yeah, well, I believe that there's some strategic micromanaging involved. Mary, what do we mean by, and then we're going to go through some bullets of what we mean by leadership and effective strategic micromanagement, which is not the same as driving people crazy around you because every two minutes you're asking them, where are we with that? Whatever. Go ahead. Yeah. So too often, I believe we will give someone a task to do, and then we either A, don't give them specific direction, or B, in the days and weeks that follow, strategically micromanage to check in, touch base, see how things are going, and most importantly, coach and mentor that person. Maybe they weren't right the right person for the job. Maybe they hit a roadblock, but don't know how to come back and tell you. Maybe they don't even know that they didn't hit a road that they hit a roadblock, and all of a sudden they're scrambling right up against a deadline. So that's what we mean by strategic micromanaging. We're turning it into a positive. Okay. All right, here we go. Strategic micromanagement tip number one. Trust, but verify. Fill in the white space, Mary, underneath. Go ahead. Yeah, definitely. So trust, but verify. You want to definitely trust that your team is doing what it is that you've asked of them, but then verify whether that's via email, whether it's walking across the hall and just saying, hey, just want to make sure you understand, you know, tell me exactly what you're working on. And then by verifying, getting something in writing is always great because then you could refer back to it a month, six months, a year later, because too often we rely on our memory and that is not good. Next bullet point, Mary, you ready to fill in the blank? I love it. Set specific deadlines for specific tasks. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. So first of all, it is so important to set deadlines, not only for yourself, but when you are delegating a task to one of your team members, you need to let them know what needs to be done specifically and by when, and then exactly how you want them to communicate and get back in touch with you and by what date. Very often, Mary and I and other leaders of organizations, we've had people say, I'm going to get to that really soon. Mm-hmm. Or ASAP. <laughs> What's, What's ASAP? Pro- What's the problem with ASAP? Yeah, as soon as possible. Is possible tomorrow? Is it a month from now? I mean, possible may be fine as soon as you can possibly do it, but you just have to be on the same page with specifically what that means. It sets ex- expectations. Well said. Next bullet point. Strategic micromanaging requires constant coaching and mentoring. What the heck does mentoring and coaching have to do with strategic micromanagement. Everything. You can't expect that just because you gave somebody a specific task that they know how to do what's right, that they that they have the skills necessary. So it's a perfect opportunity for you to coach and mentor them throughout the process, giving them specific feedback and also saying great job when they do a great job. Mary, you just took the fourth bullet point. The fourth Oh, I did? I'm sorry. Go ahead. You ready? Yes. You can be specific about the deadlines. You can coach, you can mentor, you can follow up, do all those things. But fourth bullet is this, constantly recognize and acknowledge your team members when there's a job well done because? Uh, It's so important. And when possible, even publicly acknowledge them. I'm not saying on Facebook or on social media, but in front of the team, send an email. Great job, Amy. I really think you handled that project well. And I want everybody to know and and see, you know, your hard work paid off on getting XYZ account. So making sure that you appreciate your team and letting them know you appreciate them, it'll make them more engaged in the future. 
And there's your mini lessons in leadership seminar on strategic micromanaging and leadership and the spirit of thanking everyone. Thank you, Elvin. Thank you, Elvin. Oh, I Elvin just said he appreciates everyone. I'll do the little heart. Okay, Elvin, I was about to say thank you, Elvin. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Scarlin. Uh, thank you, April. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Mary. You sound like Mr. Rogers. I see Tiffany and I see. <laughs> I I'm sorry. Me. Thank you, everyone. We have to go. Our, our, our great editor, Sylvester, is going to say we went over time. And thank you, Sylvester, but I didn't hear anyone thanking me. Thank I you, Steve. Needs. We appreciate you. Too late. Too late. See you next time. <laughs> this edition of Lessons in Leadership is made possible by the Bucino Leadership Institute at Seton Hall University, Prager Metis, Valley Bank, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 825, the North Ward Center, the New Jersey Sharing Network, Delta Dental of New Jersey, Fedway Associates, Inc., Veolia, resourcing the world, and Seton Hall University, showing the world what great minds can do since 1856. This is Mary Gamba. If you want more leadership tips and tools, log on to stand-deliver.com. That's stand-deliver.com. Promotional support for this edition of Lessons in Leadership with me, Steve Adubato, and my colleague, Mary Gamba, has been provided by NJ.com, NJBIA, and New Jersey Business Magazine, CIANJ, and Commerce Magazine. Most people don't think about where their water comes from, but we do. Veolia, more than water, resourcing the world.